This is one of Sorenzo Strong's favorite parts of the job. Strong, who everyone calls Fats, is patrolling a sunny, laughter-filled park on the west side of Chicago, decked out in a neon yellow vest and a smile. How you doing, man? Put that on for me. I'll be right back. Yeah, all right. Fats is an anti-violence worker in the East Garfield Park neighborhood. His job is to prevent shootings. Part of that prevention is just having a presence in spots where violence is threatening to take hold. We're down at uh, Rockwell. It used to be a project that has been torn down and rebuilt, but everybody still comes back down here and hang out. Uh, so we're down here doing a pop-up with the church lighting the night event to uh, keep the peace down here. Rockwell Garden stood for more than 40 years, a massive public housing complex with 16-story high-rises holding thousands of Westsiders. Those high-rises were controlled by different gangs who sold drugs out of them and battled each other for turf. The city demolished Rockwell in the 2000s. Officials promised to build better communities in its place, but that promise has been largely unfulfilled. So the former residents come back here to rekindle that sense of community that was taken from them. But when they get together, Fats tells me, the old gang lines come back too. At the center of it all is a nondescript park with an even more nondescript name, Park 574. It's a mostly empty grass field dotted with a few trees and a play structure. Today, the park is awash in music. A giant speaker plays traditional cookout hits while kids frolic around a giant inflatable slide and older folks play spades on fold-up tables. Not far away, at least three other groups are blasting music. A couple play competing rap hits. Another slow jams. Each song represents a different group, a completely separate hangout that just happens to be taking place mere feet from someone else's party. When someone new enters Park 574, many sets of eyes track them to see where they're going, who they're with. Fats tells me to put on a neon vest that matches his. I thought, why'd, you, why'd you have me put the vest on, just so people know? Yeah, you and me. <laughs> All right. We're on the same team. <laughs> and is this a high shooting area for you guys? Yeah, this is what we call our hot spot. And this is a real hot spot, because if something happens down here, it, it messes up the whole summer. Why is that? Because this is like the place where everybody hangs and congregates. and Everybody knows each other. And then it's like two, three different organizations that's around. And when something happens, it can go haywire and go through the whole city. A few days after the event, just steps from where the kids were playing, two men would be shot in the street, sending Fats and his co-workers scrambling to prevent the shooting from turning into the cycle of retaliation Fats was so worried about. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Patrick Smith. This is Motive. Every single day when you're out there, you're going to be on the front lines. Nobody wants to pay us. Nobody wants to see what we do and how we do it. This is going to be the rest of my life. Like, is everybody going to look at me like a target? Is I'm ever going to be comfortable in my own skin again? I ain't know how to go through all this. I'm just trying to change. Episode 2, De-Escalation. The big bet we talked about last episode, an attempt to find a new, lasting solution to gang violence. Workers like Fats and Sessie are at the center of it. 
Ceci, who we met last week, is a victim advocate. She tends to the wounded and the grieving. Fats is an outreach worker. He and his co-workers are supposed to insert themselves into the middle of ongoing conflicts. They use their street knowledge and connections to prevent shootings and try to pull young people out of gangs. This week, we'll be focusing on the outreach workers. We'll also be exploring the world in which they operate. That includes Rockwell Gardens, a public housing complex that was torn down years ago, but that's still a source of conflict. We're going to tell the story of men who committed violence there and follow them as they negotiate truces between competing gangs. And we're going to try to better understand the gang divisions that fuel the violence and the motivations of the people who uphold them. To better do that, I asked Ceci to join me in studio. Okay, so if you want to move a little closer to the mic there, like that is good, right? All right, so actually the first and most important question I have for you. Should we refer to you in this podcast as Cece or Ceci? Ceci's good. Ceci. Okay, yes. good. That's what I was going with. It's just, so for the longest time I was calling you Cece because that's how uh, Jesse introduced me to you. And then I heard you introduce yourself to other people as Ceci. So I was like, all right, shit, it's Ceci. But then I heard Joe call you Cece. So I was like, all right, well, I mean, the father of her kids calls her calls her Cece. But anyway, Ceci. Calls me other names. <laughs> Ceci it is. Ceci has been a sounding board for me through the year plus I've been reporting for this series. She grew up a few miles from East Garfield Park. She never saw her neighborhood torn down like the former Rockwell Gardens residents. But she's a former gang member herself, and she says anyone can understand the pull of your old neighborhood. They're going to keep going back. That's their home. That's where they grew up. That's what they knew, like me. That's why it's important to them. Sassy says the loyalties that Fats was talking about that can drive conflict and violence at Rockwell, the emotions that inspire folks to stake a claim in a tiny sliver of parkland where their homes used to be. She says those feelings are basically universal for people who grew up in gangs. And it's something every anti-violence worker in Chicago has to understand and respect. Any block, you know what I'm saying, where I grew up, where you grew up, that's what you know. Regardless if that house is there, if that building's there, regardless, even if it's gone, people don't understand that's where we're from. And those gang lines that seem arbitrary to me. That means family. That's their comfort. That's somebody they can go back to. When they had nothing, that's who they went to. And they can still go back. A lot of our our youth come out of one-parent households. So when their parents have to work, the streets are their family. And the violence that can come along with that, why is that a part of it? I think it's more than protecting the territory so nobody, no rivals come in and take that spot, take that space. Because then they'll lose it. They'll lose the, wherever they make the money and where their comfort zone is. That's your comfort zone. That's your safe space. That's interesting, their comfort zone. Like, like... Because not everybody's making money out there anymore, right? No. So if you're not really making money on the block, it's still important to you to hold it? Yes. That's Why? Your, that's your hood. That's your neighborhood. I couldn't imagine another rival gang taking over where I grew up. Never. I don't know. It's hard. I've been shot. I've been stabbed. Did it feel worth it to you at the time? Yeah, I was with mine, you know, with my clique. Why did it feel worth it? Because that's what I know. Them were my homies. That's my family. I can, I can give you an example. 
my second daughter, I think she was a year and a half. And I recently went through a divorce. And I had to go back home. So when I went back home, my father was drinking. He wanted money that I didn't have. Get the hell out of my house. Get the fuck out of my house. So I went back to the block with my kids in a stroller. I put them in a hallway. There was an apartment building. And I had blankets. You know, I had a diaper bag. And I stood outside on the block, and my kids were protected by being in that hallway sleeping. One was in the stroller, and one laid on the floor. I had, I would have had nowhere else to go that I knew my kids would have been okay. But to that block, so that's our security. That's what I mean about family. Sometimes family ain't blood. The definition of gang has stretched and shifted over the years in Chicago, gone from the top-down, profit-focused enterprises of the 80s and 90s into smaller, block-level cliques whose motivations are harder to define. But when people in Garfield Park talk about gang violence, they're talking about shootings carried out by affiliated groups, groups of mostly young men who have each other's backs and hold each other's grudges. Rockwell Gardens, the site of the picnic and the site of the shooting a few days later, is at the center of a lot of the gang conflicts in the neighborhood. To understand Rockwell Gardens today, and really to understand the whole neighborhood, the rivalries and allegiances that united and divided, you have to go back to when Rockwell was still standing. A number of the anti-violence workers in East Garfield Park are from the public housing complex, like Robert Irvin and Vernell Maddox. The two men grew up together in Rockwell Gardens in the 70s and 80s. We've been knowing each other since we were young men. Well, right? We grew up in the our same mothers, project. We went to the same grammar same school. Project. Yeah, same yeah. grammar school, everything. Their mothers worked together as certified nursing assistants. The two boys were inseparable. Even today, they sort of talk as one, often repeating each other or jumping in to confirm what the other is saying. A lot of people say me and Vanel look alike. Yeah, it, they, it's crazy. Yeah, they used to think we so was, we, a lot of people thought we was brothers for a while because right. we hung out that much. You know, like that. You know, like I tell you, he's my brother. I don't look at him no other way other than my big brother. And that love is in my heart for him. Yeah. In that manner. Each boy struggled with their relationships with their dads. Vernell says he never actually knew his father. Rob says his dad was abusive. Both remember when they learned another boy in Rockwell had been killed. It wasn't an easy world that they grew up in, but they had each other. They had fun together, got in trouble together, looked out for each other. But Rob and Vernal grew up in different buildings. It wasn't a problem when they were little. They were still basically next-door neighbors. But it became an issue when they hit their teens. We yeah. chose different we chose. organizations yeah. to uh, be a part of. And that's how the Rockwell Gardens was. Yeah. Uh, you had different buildings. You had about, like, how many buildings in Rock Project? Well, 11. 11. 11, 12 and, project and buildings and in Rockwell. different organizations. You and know so each building chose to be what they was. Yeah, right. How old were you each when you joined up with with with, a gang, with your separate gangs? Uh, I joined the gang at the age of 14. Yeah, I was uh, just graduated from uh, eighth grade. And I think I might have been, what, two years younger than you? Yeah. Which gangs were they? Vice Lords and Disciples. Disciples, yeah. 
And that was strictly based on which uh, what area, what building we was in. Building, yeah, which building we was in, yeah. So let me ask you this: Growing up where you guys both did, did you feel like you had a choice in joining a gang at all? Like, could you just said, "No, I'm not being a GD or a vice lord or any of it"? I don't. I don't think we had. Well, at that time, back then, I didn't think I had a choice. My brother was the chief at that time. Uh, It seemed like everybody who I knew (laughs) was already in it. And it, it was like each year <laughs> when you reach 13 to 14, right. you, was, you were choosing yeah, what I, size you was on. I agree with him 100. percent I didn't have another view. That's all we we had. That's we all seen. we did. And I didn't get to understanding until that I could have avoided this until I really got up in age when I was about 19, 20 years old, and I seen other guys in the neighborhood that was going to school, they was going to college. You know, they, they had no parts of what was going on right in the midst of Rockwell, but yet they was coming home every day. And you could see a briefcase on his shoulder. So the older I got, I understood that I I didn't have that opportunity to make that choice. I didn't see it then, right. put it like that. I didn't see that opportunity to make that choice to avoid this. Rob's brother was a chief in the Gangster Disciples. Riddell's cousin was deep in with the traveling vice lords. The two boys, just 14 and 12, followed the paths that were laid out for them. 12-year-old Rennell's decision to join the Vice Lords made Rob's blood boil. He says he had hatred in his heart for Rennell because of it. Because we had grew up together and we hung together, and then he chose to do something. Right, I went on the, I went Another the direction. side. Yeah, you know what and I'm saying? so to me, that was betrayal. That was like betrayal. Yeah, yeah. and I was mad. But the gang affiliations were largely based on building. So why did you hold it against him that he, he had gone with Vice Lords? Because he didn't supposed to. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we we came up together, you know, and you think we gonna, this is what we're going to do. Right. And then, it's, it's, to me, it was like betrayal. I mean, but, you know, I was hurt. Well, nobody else hurt. I was hurt. It, it was personal. To me, it was an attack on me because he was my man, right? And uh, me and Vanell was close. And then here it is, we didn't, I, I'm, I, don't, I don't like him, and he don't like me. The two friends turned rivals came face-to-face at a store called Groceryland one day. The store sat on a dividing line between their two gangs. But I remember one time I wanted to fight somebody that starred some stuff. Rob knew there were vice lords in the store. He gathered up some of his fellow gangster disciples to try to beat them up. He didn't know Vernell was one of the rivals inside. I was in the store. Right, because when you go on this side, it was GDs, and then on this side, Vice Lord. So a lot of stuff went on at this store, right? So I'm in the store already shopping. They was on something. They came in and seen me. Oh, yeah, we could have get him, you know, at that time. But I had a gun, and I upped it. Suddenly, Vernell was pointing a gun at his childhood best friend. When I walked in, I said, okay, you're going to get him, I'm going to get him. Right. That's on my mind. And well, when I made my move, he upped it and put it right on, almost on my chest. I couldn't do nothing but freeze. His hesitation let me know that he wasn't going to shoot. At first, when he first upped it, I'm, I'm gone. But, but he but, knew I couldn't shoot him. But, I, but it was like, my nail, he couldn't do it. No, I couldn't yeah, do it. he couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Yeah. If that would have been somebody else, they would have been. I'd probably yeah, be in jail for murder I right we now. Still, that he yeah. still cared about me. Yeah. Because I didn't know he still cared. Because yeah. I was... Sending threats to him. Sending threats. 
Rob had made it known he wanted to kill Vernell. There was one time at the same store, Groceryland, when Rob ran into Vernell's girlfriend and the couple's young daughter. Rob rubbed the little girl's head and told her, Hey, you're a pretty little baby, but I'm going to kill your daddy. That's Vernell retelling it, based on what he heard from his girlfriend later that night. Rob says it's true. I seen his, I seen Wanda, the one he had the kids by, and I seen the baby, and I like, uh, I remember saying to the to the child, I like, you know, I'm gonna kill your daddy. And I meant that when I said it that day, I said I'm gonna kill your daddy. Listen, we're here now. You're helping people. I'm not, but that's a horrific thing to say to a, a little kid. Yeah. We, he didn't know no better. I was. How old were you? I was uh, probably in my early twenties. Yeah, early 20s. You got I mean, that's the lifestyle that's how we live, that I right? live. I, I joined the gang at the age of 14. I didn't get out till the age of 37. That was my life. What do you think about that moment now? At that time, that's the mind frame that I was in. I was a game banger. Game bangers, game bang. That's the lifestyle I live. I fought, I shot, I soldier. Well, whatever went along with that lifestyle, that's what I did. But the one with that was the oldest person at the game beat. Because I was hooked on drugs, had been to prison. I'm like, man, I got it, man. And hadn't accomplished anything. Hadn't accomplished anything. 36 years old, hadn't accomplished anything. At a game beat. No, 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 no. And so that's when I turned to the God, turned to the Lord. And that's when my whole life changed. Rob pulled himself out. And eventually, he and Vernell reconnected. Both men found religion. Rob Christianity, Vernell Islam. And both men kicked their drug addictions. Vernell's daughter, who he made the threat to, she's in her late 30s now. Vernell says she doesn't remember the day at all. Sessie says Rob's threat, it fits totally into her experiences in the gang life. That's all normal. It's happened. People gave my mother messages. Tell your son, tell your daughter when we catch him. That's it's nothing shocking to me. Nothing shocking. Really? Yeah, it's normal. Rob also talked about being 36 years old, looking around being the oldest person in a, in a gang meeting. I see it. You know people have gone through that? Absolutely. I think ultimately people get tired of the life. That's got to be an empty feeling. I mean, he talked about it, but whatever age you are when you decide to leave, you've been so deep into it. You're more committed to that than I am to this job or to anything else in my life. And then you get to a point and you're like, this added up to nothing. It's not nothing to me. I don't feel like it was a waste of time. Did I accomplish something? No, I didn't accomplish nothing. But, I mean, I'll never forget where I come from. That old feeling of loyalty and pride, it's a feeling shared by many of the people who come back to Rockwell. Even though the buildings have been torn down, old streams of allegiances and divisions still converge there, threatening to turn into violence at any moment. And those gang affiliations... They're still shaping the environment that anti-violence workers step into. An environment where something as small as a disagreement over who is going to pay for a broken window 
can turn to murder. The upside is that small disagreements can sometimes have small solutions. That's next. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Fats is a low-key guy. It flies directly in the face of the kind of work he does as an outreach worker. High stakes, constantly changing. But Fats almost always has a smile on his face. He's a heavyset guy with a friendly face and a bald head. In the summer, he's usually wearing shorts, a T-shirt, and a rotating selection of hats. One of my favorites declares him a retired drug dealer. Fat says he's always been friendly and cool with people. But sometimes it can feel almost ridiculous how calm Fats is about everything. Like, here he is, talking about that shooting that happened just a few days after the light in the night event at the park, sounding half asleep. person was shot right here, right here on Adams and Maplewood, and... Um, it was just like summer beginning. So it happened right here? Yep. I met up with Fats at Rockwell to talk through that shooting and what he and his team did after to try and prevent more violence in its wake. The initial incident happened on the 4th of July weekend. It was about 3 a.m. Fats assumes people were drinking and getting high. He says there was a fight and one guy pulled out a gun. He didn't shoot anyone, but he got shot along with someone else standing with him. You point a gun at somebody, somebody don't get shot, so. And the guy who got shot, his buddy's truck got smashed up. After the shooting, then, yes, they bust his windows because he brought the guy over here. So now you've got two guys in the hospital, one guy with a smashed up car and a separate group who, even though they shot two people, they feel like they were just defending themselves against an act of aggression. Fat says the guys who got shot and the guy whose truck got smashed, they're in one gang. The guys who did the shooting and the smashing, they're in another. It's a recipe for disaster. But Fats was calm. So we were trying to get on top of it, get a handle on it before it escalate and be retaliation behind it. Fats started by talking to the shooters. We got together right across the street over there. So you talk to him and you're like, listen... You know, I know there was the shooting. We don't want any more shootings after that. Yeah, we want the kids to be able to come out and still play and not be afraid, you know, and for something senseless. The buildings are gone, so it's not like you're going to be able to take a block or nothing like that because ain't nobody hustling down here. It's just friends hanging out, congregating, drinking, things like that. But So you say this to, to, to the guy, to one side over here. What do they say back? Uh, they, they, they take heed to it. And they were willing. They was like, you know, we don't have a problem with him. You know, he came at us. Like, if he done with it, you know, they done with it. So, uh, did he want retaliation from that? There was some people around him. You know, it's not always the person who gets shot who wants the retaliation. It'd be family members or friends. So it could be anybody who wanted to do the retaliation. But we was trying to make sure no one retaliated. So we talked to 
close people to him. Just standing standing here on the street and talking, and people see us all talking and know everything's okay, you know what I mean? And ain't nothing about to happen when they see all sides talking, you know, instead of beefing and mean mugging. So when they see us all talking, they know it's all love. So Fats had the shooters. He had the victims. He had most of the victims' friends. The only sticking point was the guy who got his truck smashed up. The way he saw it, he didn't do anything wrong. His friend did. But now he's out a bunch of money getting his car repaired. And it's more than money. These other guys wronged him, disrespected him. He needed to be made whole. He was like, man, I didn't, I didn't know what was happening, and you know, but I just want my windows fixed, and I'm, I'm done with it. How much money did he want for repairing the window? Uh, I think it was like 800 But, you know, we was able to talk, and, you know, some guys came up with money. Everybody pitched in, and he got more than what he even asked for. You know. So the other organization, not the guy who got his window smashed, it was the other organization that, that pooled the money together? Yeah. Fats convinced the gang responsible for the shooting and smashing to cover the guy's car repairs. Because if it didn't come to be resolved, the guy, like you said, he would have felt disrespected. He probably would have been like, oh, fuck them. And it could have went a, a, a whole nother way. Like, he could have wanted, wanted some revenge or told him, like, okay, well, we going over there. I'm going to bust somebody's windows or whatever. You know what I mean? I hurt, hurt somebody, anything. And vice versa. They could have did the same thing. Like, But it wasn't about that. Like I say, everybody was like-minded and, and wanted the same results. Fats and his coworkers were proud of the resolution. They had found a simple and relatively cheap solution to a problem that was threatening to go in a very bad direction. And really, it's a solution that couldn't have been worked by too many people. There's a lot being invested in community anti-violence work like this, but it pales in comparison to what we invest in police and prisons, and those institutions could not have brokered this peace. Police, if they did anything, could arrest the shooter. But that rarely happens, and it's probably not what any of the people involved would have wanted. Fats and his team found a way to restore the peace without doing further harm. But of course, Rockwell was still a fraught area. The resolution meant one problem had been solved, but a new one was always threatening to pop up. In the weeks after the shooting, the workers continue to monitor the area. They scan social media, call connections, and do something they call mobile canvassing, which is just basically driving around. We're for the canvas through our East Garfield area, man. Let you get an uh, insight, close-up look on what we see on a day-to-day basis. And what does canvassing mean? Well, we patrol a lot of hot spots, you know, try to, you know, gather as much information we can for us from visuals. Like, if we see a large crowd, we report it to our team so everybody will be uh, alert to that area just in case something jump off, we already be ahead of the game. A few weeks after the 4th of July weekend shooting, anti-violence worker Leon Baylor, who goes by Leesky, is driving through the darkened streets of Garfield Park in his black Chevy Tahoe, diamond stud in each ear, narrating in his laid-back drawl. So I for the start you off with, this is where Rockwell used to be at, you know, it's the B-13 story buildings right here. This was my playground where I grew up at when I was young. Leesky works the overnight shift, 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. He drives past the park where the light in the night event was held. It's about 10.30 at night. The area is pretty quiet. 
not many people out because it was a shooting that we still sketchy about, you know what I mean, retaliation. We don't know There's one group of about a dozen folks, men and women who look to be in their 30s and 40s. They've got their cars all parked together in a vacant grass lot along Jackson Boulevard. They're listening to music, having a few drinks. The vibe is fun and relaxed. Leesky slows the car down and rolls down his window. What I do? Some of the guys in the lot give Leesky an upwards head nod. Damn, them the older crowd, those, not the, the young guys that's out there, the ones I just talked to. That was my age bracket, you know what I mean? So they really out the way, most time working jobs, got families and stuff, and businesses and stuff like that. But it's probably- Leesky explains that this group may have gotten into trouble in the past. They may know some younger guys causing trouble now, but they're all past the age of fights and mayhem. There's not much going on, and we keep driving. We drive through the park that gives the neighborhood its name. It's one of my favorite parks in the city. It has more than 170 acres of green space, scenic lagoons, and a shimmering golden dome atop a park building where kids learn boxing and dance. We drive through blocks and blocks of Chicago's iconic brick two-flats. Then we pass by the McDonald's, where seven-year-old Jaslyn Adams was murdered. Shot to death, waiting in the drive-thru with her dad. You know, I got a little daughter myself, man, so it's like things like that hit close to home, man. Especially when you, you know it's the innocent that's getting killed, man. Like, she didn't deserve that. It's a shooting that has come up a lot in my reporting in East Garfield, and it will keep coming up. Near Rockwell again, Leesky's telling me about a guy in his 50s who was recently gunned down when an SUV roars past us. Yeah, it do. It do. A lot of people look at it. That's what made it to the point where people get get the time by, like, I, everybody getting in that. You know what I mean? The SUV drives about 100 yards in front of us and then stops in the middle of the street. It's crazy because, like... And we can hear the clamor of gunshots. Look. You hear? Yeah, what the... Yeah. They just... You hear? I do hear The dozen or so people who were hanging out in the lot next to the park, the older folks who Leesky said don't get into trouble anymore, they are shooting at the SUV. The people inside the SUV are shooting right back. Then abruptly, the SUV takes off. That shooting just happened, right? Yeah. It just shot. Hit anybody? Uh huh. That was kind of a lot of shots. Yeah. We drive up to the scene of the shooting. Ooh, you smell like gun smoke. You smell it? Yeah. Woo! You smell like gun smoke. The people who had been hanging out in the vacant lot are scattering and scrambling. Seconds later, a trio of cars whips past us, driving down the center of the two-lane road, going who knows how fast. These are some of the guys from the vacant lot, chasing after the SUV. So they chasing the truck right now. Yeah, they not knowing. Yeah, see all three of them cars that just flew past us. All them chasing the truck right now. Leesky waves down a couple guys. What on, what on? They just got the shooting down now? Right here. That was in his area? Yeah, they took a, they took a, they carjacked Blackie for a Mercedes-Benz truck last night. Right. And they just rode past in his truck. Wow. That's all the shooting that's going on. They're chasing the truck. Yeah, the truck just turned this way. I just showed yeah. him. Yeah. As he just explained to us, the truck that... According to a couple people who were there, the SUV that passed us was stolen. Had been carjacked from a guy who hangs out at the old Rockwell site. 
The thieves were driving past. The guy saw his own truck that had just been taken from him, and he started shooting. The guys in the truck stopped and shot back. I mean, that was, so this is the group that you said was like all old Old cats, yeah. But you know, even if they're old hats, they're going to hide their protection out here. You know what I mean? Like, they ain't involved with nothing, like actively going out here trying to start. Now, as you seen, we came past the first time. They was out here drinking, music was playing. That was probably like 20, 30 minutes. How long have you been recording? About 38 minutes? We just went around and came back, and all that happened just that. Blink of an eye, man. The solution to the broken window at Rockwell was something police couldn't have brokered. But here, in the immediate aftermath of this shooting, there's really not much Leeski can do to help. Like, is he supposed to join in the chase? Then what? He doesn't have a badge. And he doesn't call the cops because it would be a betrayal of the community's trust if he starts cooperating with police. And this might be a case where people do want to rest made. Maybe not either side doing the shooting, but what about the people who live in the homes that served as the backdrop for the shootout? Or the other people just trying to hang out in the vacant lot? That's what we up against. After about 20 minutes, there were no reports of anyone shot. So apparently the guys didn't catch up to the SUV. I feel a wave of relief as we get further away from the incident. As frightening as it was, no one was hurt over it. Leesky and I drive around East Garfield Park for another two hours. It's all quiet again. At about 12.45 a.m., he takes me back to my car. I went home. The men in that SUV did not. About 15 minutes later, they returned to Rockwell, shot up the vacant lot again. This time, they hit three people. Thankfully, no one died. The solution Fats and Leesky and some other anti-violence workers came up with to prevent retaliation, it was even simpler than an $800 car repair. You see, the guys who did the carjacking, they carjacked someone in their own gang, only they didn't know it. That shootout was just one gang shooting itself. One of the anti-violence workers used his gang connections to figure it out, and he convinced the guys who stole the car to give it back. Persuaded the guy whose SUV was stolen to let bygones be bygones. And despite a massive shootout on a major road, a high-speed chase, another shooting with three victims, the older guys agreed. No hard feelings. Easy mistake. On the next episode of Motive, we'll head back out with Ceci as she helps victims of gun violence. Anybody that would put you in a predicament like that is not your friend. We'll get an up-close look at the toll anti-violence work can take on the people doing it. They don't care about us at all, but they always call us superheroes. And we'll check back in with Joey, Ceci's client who was shot 11 times just steps from his house. I tell him I don't want to go outside. It's dangerous. That guy knows you're my kid. How about he makes up his mind and wants to shoot at you? That's next week on Motive. Motive is a production of WBEZ Chicago. I'm Patrick Smith. Marie Mendoza is our producer. Our editor is Rob Wildebor. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Tracy Brown is our chief content officer. Our story consultant is Cecilia Mannion. Additional help from Jesse Dukes, Natalie Moore, Kate Cahan, Shannon Heffernan, Anna Sefchinka, and Joe Dussault. Music from Jeff Els, Q Shop, Blue Dot Sessions, and Audio Network.
Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.